0: Welcome to a special episode of the CNR Sports Armchair Interviewing Series. My guest today is Charlie Batch. Charlie was first a quarterback at Eastern Michigan University from 1994 to 1997 during his time at quarterback. He was selected first team All Mac honors in 1995 as well as team MVP in 1997. He eventually left EMU, holding many school records, including And almost every passing category, including career passing yards, passing touchdowns, and total yards, as well as topping 3,000 yards twice in two separate seasons. Charlie was eventually drafted in the second round by the Detroit Lions in 1998. In his second season, Betch helped Detroit secure a playoff spot one year after the unexpected retirement of legendary running back Barry Sanders. This turned out to be the Lions' last playoff appearance until 2011. Eventually, two years later, Batch was signed by his hometown Pittsburgh Steelers starting in 2002. Over the course of the next 10 years, Charlie remained on the Pittsburgh roster, becoming a two-time Super Bowl champion while backing up the legendary Ben Roethlisberger. And Charlie also won six of his nine starts for Pittsburgh during that time while filling in for Roethlisberger. After retiring in 2013, Charlie became a studio analyst with the local Pittsburgh television station, KDKA, as well as providing color commentary for Steelers preseason games. He runs his own charitable organization called The Best of the Batch, which is active in assisting youth in his hometown of Homestead, Pennsylvania through a variety of programs provided by the foundation. Welcome to the show, Charlie.
1: Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me.
0: All right. Let's get started. So my first question is, uh, what is your earliest football playing memory?
1: Oh, wow. Uh, (laughs) Probably been Pee Wee League. I started playing ball when I was seven years old, and I was eager to get out there. And my mother thought I was too small to actually go play, and she actually... um, filled out the registration form and she thought I, the her hope was that i got hit so hard that i actually didn't want to play anymore <laughs> and it actually reversed and i'm like oh this is how we do this but it was an opportunity to be around friends and if i wasn't around if i wasn't playing then i would be sitting there watching them play so i just remember you know having so much fun at a younger age and really I, that's when i started to kind of fall in love with the game
0: Oh. Uh, that that's great <laughs> i love how the almost the reverse uno card sort of pulled out there like she's like oh he's gonna get hit and then he's not gonna like it but then he he turned out to like it. (laughs) oh man for those who may not know you grew up in homestead pennsylvania which is just outside of pittsburgh it leaves me curious how did you end up deciding to go to eastern michigan university
1: yeah, that's an interesting story, and uh, you know, Homestead is ten minutes east of Pittsburgh, downtown Pittsburgh. So, you know, it was, we're we're like a half a bridge away from being considered city. And I think, uh, well, there was a coach that came down, and he was actually recruiting the um, receiver that we had by the name of Rick Walker. And from there, he sees you know sees me throwing around, and I just remember him asking a question to the coach that who's recruiting this quarterback. And from there, he, um, so that really, that wasn't being recruited as much. And ultimately he said, Hey, would you like to come up and, uh, see what the campus has to offer and, you know, take a tour around campus. And of course I had no idea where Ypsilanti was at leaving Pittsburgh. And I was just like, oh, well, he said, it's about five hours away from here. And ultimately, uh, me and my mother drove up and she dropped me off and, I had a recruit by the name of Lathe, I mean, um, he was on, he eventually was a teammate, but a guy by the name of Lathe Hartwood. And he was actually from Pittsburgh as well. And he was my host and he took me around and man, I enjoyed the campus and it was just one of those things where I'm just like, wow, this is, you know, this could be a place for me. And ultimately Jim Harkama, who was the coach at the time of recruitment, he actually offered me a scholarship, even though I didn't have the opportunity to play underneath him. He was gone before I actually started playing um, but from there, you know, because Eastern was the first to offer me a scholarship, that's how I ended up at uh, in Ypsilanti.
0: Well, that's a that's a very cool story. And, you know, I, I was just curious to see how you ended up there. And it seemed it seemed like. You enjoyed your experience there for sure.
1: I did. And it was one of those things where I had no idea, because, you know, at that point, I'm playing basketball. And I remember taking in a visit. It was the beginning of the uh, first weekend of December. And we just played a basketball game Friday night. We hopped on, hopped in the car, got on the road immediately after when we got there. And from there, you know, I was introduced. And man, I had a ball. I mean, I really did. I came back talking about, and everybody's like, "Man, it, it seems like you're pretty sold on Eastern Michigan." I said, "Well, they offered me a scholarship, so you know, if they're one of the first to commit, then hey, why not?" And I made a verbal commitment at that particular point. And then it was right around the 11th hour, you know, Pitt was kind of waiting on me and they're like, Hey, what do you think? And I'm like, well, you know, I made a commitment back in December and I'm gonna stick with my commitment. And that's kind of how I ended up at Eastern. Wow.
0: You decided, well, thanks, but no thanks to basically Pitt. Um,
1: yeah. And essentially, you know, I had my mind made up that I was going to leave, uh, leave home. And I was prepared to be four or five hours away from home. And, you know, at that point I was so excited. I remember, you know, wearing the apparel around. I had an Eastern Michigan shirt. It seemed like every once a week I would put that shirt on because I was so proud about that green and white shirt. And ultimately, um, when I came down to it, it was just something in my heart to say, you want to know what? That This is the place for you.
0: Very cool. Um, what would you consider uh, your most sort of memorable moment in in college?
1: Uh, it would have to be uh, that first year in '94. I remember, you know, just kind of going through. It. I was backing up at the time, so I would get a chance to maybe play, you know, sporadically, maybe one one series. You know, next game I may not get any. And then it wasn't until that it, the final game of the 1994 season, and we were playing Toledo, and we were down, I think seventeen nothing, at the end of the first quarter. And Ron Cooper, he was the head coach at that time. Um, he made a switch at quarterback. And I had a it was going at the end of the first quarter. And I remember going down and we led a drive. And I think it was, you know, we led to at least a field goal in that particular moment. And he was like, wow, let's keep him in. And from there, he, when I came off the sideline after that drive, he said, this is your this is your game. You go out there and finish it. And the game unfolded. We kind of went back and forth. And I just remember this what was it? 37, 34 We're roughly three, four seconds left on the clock and we were sitting there on the 30-yard line and we're trying to punch it in. And the whole crowd, they stood up and we're just trying to make a play. And I'm like, it's too far to kind of throw the Hail Mary because they had everybody sitting back in the end zone at that time. And I felt that I had to buy time. So I dropped back to pass and I'm just trying to buy time and I kind of get like there's some pressure that was happening. So I literally rolled to the left, again, just buying time. And I see Ontario Pryor, who was a receiver at the time, he's on the left-hand side to start to play. He runs a post, and he gets to the middle of the field, and he sees me scrambling to the left. So he reverses field, and now is coming right to left. And I see a defender right there, right at the goal line. And I'm thinking to myself, I have to get enough on it, just over top of him to allow Ontario to make this catch. Difficult throw, but as I was rolling, and I put just enough on it, and when I let it go, I said, this has a chance, and I was tackled as I let the ball go. Ontario caught the pass. We ended up winning that game like forty to thirty-seven. All the team rushed out to the end zone, and at that time, there was not the uh, there was not the uh, George Gervin Center there. Um, it was a big hill with a block E in the middle of the hillside, and literally everybody's running. We're all celebrating, and everybody goes to that block E, and we're all up there cheering. And man, it was so exciting. You know, we come. Everybody walks off at of that hillside. We go to the crowd. We're cheering, cheering that you know, on that fight song. And it was just one of those moments that I'll never forget because I felt like, okay, I finally arrived where I had the opportunity, but yet really didn't have a chance to really showcase my skills uh, full time. And I was really, you know, building off the momentum of what happened in a 1994 season and get us ready uh, for the following season.
0: Wow. That, that, that's just incredible. I know if I was in your position, I'd, I'd definitely still remember it for a long time. That's for sure. Uh, it really
1: was. And, you know, to this day, there's a lot of people who remember that play. And it's funny because uh, the vice president of marketing for the Pittsburgh Steelers actually was the quarterback for Toledo at the time of that game. And he still remembers it to this day. And so every time, you know, Eastern is playing Toledo, we always talk about, you know, a little friendly wager that we're going to put onto the game. And he's always remembering, he's like, hey, I remember that 1994 game. I'll never forget you for that because I'm still upset because you actually beat us, you know, during that on the final play. And even though they talk about it negatively, we talk about it positively on our end because there's a lot of people who remember it to this day.
0: Oh, oh, man.
1: We're almost coming up on 30 year anniversary of that. So maybe it's a point where next year we get a chance to kind of celebrate that particular play.
0: Oh yeah, for sure that'd be fun for like twenty twenty four. I'll have to, I'll have to keep that bookmarked in my, uh, in in my noggin. So absolutely, absolutely. Moment that you realize that playing in the NFL might be sort of that possibility. It was after that season. There was a little
1: uncertainty because uh, Ron Cooper actually got the job at uh, Louisville, so he left. And then Rick Rasnick was brought in as the head coach. And he had a lot of success at the University of Utah. And he brought in an offensive coordinator who happened to be at at Arizona State at that time by the name of Dan Henson. And there were a lot of conversations at the end. The the starter from the 1994 season was actually returning. So I figured I was going to battle between him uh, for the starting job the following season. And as they're kind of going through, and he – and uh, Dan Henson at that time, he says, I don't necessarily think that you have to um, uh, look for a quarterback. I think we have one on the team. And it wasn't in, there was a guy by the name of Todd Munkin, who is the wide receivers coach, who now is the offensive coordinator for the Baltimore Ravens. So as he's on this roster and he goes and they're having conversations, he says, Hey, I think you need to check Charlie out. So he brought in some practice tape. He looked the film. And at that point, Dan Henson says, I don't think we need a quarterback. We have one on our team and you're going to be our starting quarterback, Charlie. And he ultimately told uh, Michael armor at that time, who was a returning starter that you're going to be the backup role. And, you know, at that point he was, he accepted because he actually was going into his senior year. He's only a few credits away from graduating. So he didn't want to transfer. And uh, we actually had a really good relationship, me and Michael armor, who actually is my fraternity brother at five beta Sigma. So we have a really good relationship and from near, he started Dan Henson started having these conversations and he says, listen if you know you kind of do everything that I tell you to do, you know, or at least I ask you to do and you work hard, within five games, I believe that NFL Scouts will know who Charlie Batch is. And I'm thinking to myself, yeah, right, you're crazy. And he lied, and the only reason why I say he lied because it wasn't five games, it was three games <laughs> where the NFL Scouts started coming in watching practice. And he was like, see, I told you. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. You have my attention. What do we need to do to continue this trend to, uh, you know, continue to, you know, on a trajectory to hopefully being drafted into the National Football League? And, you know, had a really good season that year. And that was one of the things that really got onto the scouts' radars.
0: Wow, that's a really cool story. And uh, knowing how you knew Todd at that time, are you not surprised by the level of success he Has garnered as a coach as he sort of continued on his path
1: forward. Yeah, I'm not surprised at all because he was a young, energetic coach, you know, wide receiver coach at that time, and you can kind of see him. And I followed him as he kind of was, you know, left Eastern and just some of the paths that we may cross. And we we crossed a couple times because there was times that uh, as he entered into the National Football League, he was at Jacksonville, so Pittsburgh played Jacksonville a lot, and I would always see him. On the sideline, we would talk about all of these stories and Eastern was always on our hearts because it gave us our, our opportunity. And to see the success that he had and then ultimately at the University of Georgia, he was a head coach and then now he is, you know, the Ravens offensive coordinator. You know, you're happy for him because you know the amount of work that he put into it. And it's not easy. And when you look at, the, you know, people who have success, regardless of how your paths cross, if you end up at Eastern, we consider you family and we're always going to be tied together all of these years later.
0: Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Um, You know, it's a shared experience that's definitely unique and not very many people I don't think can understand the amount of hard work that goes into coaching, regardless regardless of what level it is, but especially at that high level. Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of time that you have to put into
1: it because, you know, now you're, you're talking and spending time around your team, but then, you know, you're spending time away from your actual family and it's tough. And any, any free time that you have in between, you're probably spending it on recruiting. So now you're talking to other athletes, you know, trying to get them to commit to your school. So it's very challenging. And I commend a lot of coaches who are in that industry because it is a very tough, tough uh, job to be a part of. especially if you want to be great at it.
0: Yeah, for sure. Uh, I've sat down with plenty of coaches, even people that have worked at the high school level. And I know the amount of work that they have to put into it. Um, for Absolutely. Sure. I'm curious now what was the draft day experience like for you? It was uh man, it was
1: anxious, it was it was stressful. It really was because you just had no idea where I was gonna go during that time. And I had a lot of friends who came in from Ypsilanti, my roommates, they were there. Um, and I ended up coming back home to homestead. And I was back at home at mom's house. And of course, the draft started at noon. It's not like it is now where it was split up on three to three, you know, two, three separate days. Every it was two days. And I had no idea they said he could be projected as low first. It could be maybe in the fourth. So I was, you know, there was a range that was happening depending on the teams that were picking. And I had a really good feeling about Detroit and Denver at that time. And I'm thinking, okay, if there's a chance. Maybe, um, you know, maybe I'll go to one of those two teams. Well, the first round at that point started at noon. The first round didn't end until 430. It was the longest first round in the history of the draft during that particular year. So, of course, when your family's there for four and a half hours, you know, it gets tiresome because you're answering the same question. When do you think you're going to go? How about this team? Where? And And after a while, I just had to really just get away from it. And then they got to the second round. And when he got to the second round, my phone started ringing, and it was like, hey, we're thinking about possibly taking you if you're at our pick. And at that point, um, it probably was around 645-ish, 6.50 p.m. And at that point, the draft is getting ready to change over to ESPN2. And in my house, ESPN2, based off the way the cable system was set up at that time, you only could get ESPN2 on the second floor, not the first floor. So all my family was on the main level. I had to go up to a bedroom and when my phone rings and it's the Detroit Lions and I'm like, Oh wow, this may be it. And I go upstairs, the uh, the channel switches to ESPN two. everybody's downstairs. Like, I think this may be it. This may be it. Be quiet. We're trying to hear him on the phone. And at that point you can see the, uh, the lions made a move. And then from there it was, Hey, you know, with the 60th pick, we're going to select Charlie Batch from Eastern Michigan. And man, that was a moment that I would never forget because the crowd, I mean, the house crowd erupted. Everybody was so excited. And then I go downstairs, I hug my mom, you know, we all become emotional. And, you know, we say we finally, it finally happened. And the one thing that I'm proud of, in fact, of in that manner is the fact that Eastern Michigan was always at the forefront. And I was able to represent the university to the fullest ability. And I think that's something that I always stay prideful of. And, man, when I got out of there, of course, I had to go do media requests. So I, you know, was able to hug everybody who was there and then ultimately had to get ready to go do media requests. So I had to go to the local TV station where they was taking a satellite feed into Detroit. So now every Detroit media outlet can actually do those interviews. And that's how, you know, I became a Detroit lion and I'm forever grateful, for the grateful for them.
0: Oh, that that's way cool. Um, you must admit, you must've been so proud.
1: It was, it, it really was because, you know, at that time you didn't see a lot of mid-American conference guys, you know, being drafted first and foremost, um, especially quarterbacks. And at that point, you know, now you're kind of, you know, you're taking that, you know, you're wearing that with a badge of honor and you're, you know, now have to go out there and prove that you can play. And that was something that, you know, when I entered into that uh, Detroit Lions facility, I was confident. I knew I had the ability to do that. And that was just a matter of going out there, proving that I could actually do it, and you know, prove that mid-American quarterbacks or mid-American players can play at the highest level.
0: Yeah, very cool. So, so a couple of months ago, I was browsing, I was browsing on YouTube, and then I came across this video compilation. It's like quarterbacks throwing blocks, and then there was this play that. I think it's from your rookie year because um, it was against Minnesota and Barry Sanders was running the ball. <laughs> and the play was basically, you know, it's one of those classic Barry runs where, you, you know, you give him the ball and then all of a sudden he sort of reverses direction. And then all of a sudden you have to throw a lead block on the defensive back oh yeah those happen a lot
1: and playing with barry sanders it was one of those things where you always had to ha- keep your head on a swivel because you had no idea even though the play was you know could have been outside zone to the right he can cut it back and all of a sudden now he's on the left hand side and you had to be prepared to block so playing with him and made me keep my antennas up for anything is possible on any giving play and having to throw those blocks at an early age you know just kept reminding me to be able to do that and it's just funny that you you mentioned that because I remember I think it was it was after Barry Sanders, it probably would have been around two thousand-ish. And we were playing the Falcons and we ran a reverse and Johnny Morton's running my side. And I I was literally down the field trying to throw a block and I didn't stay upright. I was trying to cut the guy. And ultimately Johnny Morton ended up getting tackled at like the two yard line. And I remember the coach saying, Hey, you have to stick with that block so we can score a touchdown. And I remembered that. And all and then I fast forward. And that was 2000. I fast forward now in 2012 and we're playing the Baltimore Ravens and literally similar play happens. I'm handing the ball off to a running back. Who's out of Georgia tech by the name of Jonathan Dwyer. And I hand him off the ball and I see him in the hole. And then all of a sudden I'm thinking he's about to bounce outside and he bounces my direction. And I literally have to now block. And I go into blocking and I remember that he said, Coach, stay on your feet. And I was able to stay on my feet. I led the, the block into the end zone. Jonathan Dwyer scored, and everybody's like, How did you know? You know, to stay on your feet? How did you know that he was going to bounce out of that? I'm like, Well, actually, 20 some years ago, you know, at that point, I think it was 15 years ago, I said, I remember the coach telling me, Stay on my feet. that I could turn around and make a block. But you always have to be ready to go because those guys do more blocking. But for me, so it's always good to return a favor.
0: Uh, for sure, that that's a cool story. Sort of follow up to that. Um, what was it like having sort of that guy as a teammate?
1: Yeah, playing with Barry was awesome, and you as great as he as great as he was and is, he never really liked to talk about himself, and you know, when you're kind of playing, when you're playing with them, you're handing off, you know, quarterback's job is to kind of boot away, try to hold the backside defender to make sure that they don't collapse and make the tackle. So a lot of the things that he did in games, I didn't see it until we actually watched film. And when I'm watching film, I'm like, wow, he did that. Oh my goodness. And it was a heck of a run for a two yard game and little things like that, that you actually see. And he was just truly humbled. He never really wanted to talk about himself and, you know, it was cool to have him as a teammate. I really was only two lockers down from him, so essentially he was a locker mate, so I had a chance to talk to him a lot, even though I was younger and he was the older vet during that time. He took me under his wing, taught me how to be a professional, and I'm always grateful for that.
0: Very cool stuff. I know I know that you talk to a lot of Barry's teammates over the years, and they say he was, he was the consummate team guy. Of course, he always had the signature, like, ritual that he had. Whenever he scored, he would just flip the ball to the ref and, you know, go hug his offensive lineman. So that's just the kind of guy he was. And And
1: everybody appreciates that. And I think that's something that when we look at this, and I think the one thing, you know, for all the accolades he had on the field, you know, when you're a star in that manner, like he was, you know, everybody wants autographs and everybody wants pictures. And the cool thing about him is the fact that whoever wanted a signature for their family, he would do it. When we got to Christmas time, there was a lot of time, a lot of players who wanted to now gift certain items or whatever it is to their family members for Christmas, and he would just sit in his locker and he would just say, "Yeah, absolutely." For lunchtime, just come on over. He would sign everything, and he would spend his lunch signing for all the players so that we can now have Christmas gifts for our families. That's just the type of person he was, and he, to this day, if you ever need something signed, if I would to call him and hey Barry, can you sign me something? And he you literally I would send it to him and he would send it back. No questions asked. And that's just he's always been that player. And, man, there's so many superstars and Hall of Famers that I've played with over the years. They are all similar in that manner.
0: Wow, that that's very cool. I uh, appreciate you sharing that. You played with the Lions for about four years. Um, do you have any sort of regrets about your time in Detroit?
1: But the only regret would be not being able to win a championship or leading a team to a Super Bowl. And that's something that you always think about, especially whenever you experience that when you move on and go elsewhere. So that was just challenging because you know of the history of it, you know, not many playoff appearances and the lack of success that they've had over the years. But when you're young, you're just, number one, you're happy to be in the league, but you're proving that you can continue to play. But you want to experience what that playoff is like, what the Super Bowl is like. And we didn't have the opportunity to do so. And it's just unfortunate um, during that time that I wasn't able to do it. But ultimately, is you see how tough it is because I've been gone now, you know, 20 years, 21 years, and they still haven't made it there. So that lets you know how challenging it really is. Uh, for sure.
0: Although although they looked really good on Thursday, I must admit. I watched the game, and they might so, have turned over a new leaf.
1: Oh, absolutely. I agree with you on that. And I think this is something that you get excited about what they're bringing to the table. Dan Campbell is doing a really good job. And he has the fan base excited to be a part of what he's buying or what he's selling. So this is something that, you know, everybody's excited about and man, what cool way to have, you know, the season tickets sold out and what better way to have come back home because man, that four field is going to be rocking and they, they're giving them something to be excited about.
0: Yeah. It was full for viewing party for a road game. I can't imagine what it's going to be like at home versus uh, <laughs> Seattle. I think it is. Absolutely. Absolutely. How did you end up signing with Pittsburgh? I ended up get, signing with
1: Pittsburgh um, because there was a uh, the second man in charge at the time was Kevin Colbert, and he was a scout. Uh, he was a scout essentially uh, for the Lions, and then in two thousand he two thousand one he ended up going um, leaving Detroit and becoming a general manager for the Steelers. So in two thousand one he was with the Steelers, and I knew you know, things were kind of getting ready to transition for me in 2002 and he reached out to me and he said, Hey, I know, you know, you're getting ready to start looking for some other team. We would love the opportunity to host you in Pittsburgh. And, you know, if everything works out, you have a good conversation with the, with the Rooney family and coach uh, Bill Cower at the time, man, we would love the, you know, opportunity to sign you here. And then from there I've had a meeting with uh, coach Cower, had a meeting with the Rooney family. And from there, It was a childhood dream come true for me because growing up in Pittsburgh, I was a Steeler fan. So having an opportunity to sign with the black and gold, that was truly a dream come true. And literally one year turned into two. That was uh, 2002. That was one year. And then from there, it turned into two years. And then ultimately, I was in Pittsburgh as a player um, for 11 seasons.
0: Beforehand in the intro, you're a two-time Super Bowl champion. Which championship do you find more meaningful? Is it Super Bowl 40 or is it Super Bowl 43?
1: I think for me, but they both had different meanings. Um, I think the Super Bowl 40 uh, Super Bowl, which which was held in Detroit, and being able to uh, go back to the city, being able to celebrate Jerome's last season, Jerome Bettis, and knowing that we had to do something that's never been done, and that was be a number six seed and go on the road for every playoff game and win a Super Bowl. And to be part of history and being able to do that and having Jerome go home, running out of that tunnel, representing the Steelers and win his final game on his way to the Hall of Fame. That was truly special to be a part of uh, during Super Bowl 40. And then, of course, Super Bowl 43, you know, you go through, we had a dominant defense and, you know, we were able to put things together because we were, you know, we were playing with a lot of confidence during that season, but it didn't go unfold the way that we thought it was going to go because Arizona Cardinals, they played extremely well that day and took a lead and we had to go down and drive. For a touchdown, and Ben Roethlisberger did a really good job in uh, leading that drive. He hits Antonio Holmes on a few plays, and then everybody remembers the toe tap catch in the back of the end zone for us to win Super Bowl forty three. And that was just, just that was just really special. And I think ultimately, you know, when you grow up a Steeler fan and they have four Super Bowls in the seventies, and then to be part of a, two teams that represent the Lombardi and bringing that Lombardi Trophy back to Pittsburgh, it's just it's humbling. And it lets you know how hard it is to get there. But also, those memories never go away. Because when you walk into that Steelers facility and you see the six Lombardi trophies that are sitting there, and then you also see the 16 pitchers that are behind it, and knowing that regardless of what year it is, you can bring your family in there toward the facility and say, you know what? There's Charlie right there. And that picture will always be in grade forever.
0: Oh, that's cool. Of course, the play that – I remember the most is, is the James Harrison interception where he runs back basically a hundred yards and the poor guy has to get oxygen when, <laughs> when he when he's done running because about by the time he reached the end zone, it looked like he just wanted to lay down and take a nap.
1: He, you're right. And we laugh about that all the time. And they, did a, I did, they did a Saturday night a live skit on that, on that exact same play. So it's pretty funny for them to uh to replay that. But to your point, when he made that interception, I'm looking at the clock and the clock is running down and I'm thinking to myself, it doesn't look like he's going to score. Maybe he should get tackled. But if he gets tackled, is there going to be enough time for us, depending on where he gets tackled to kick a field goal or if this time run out and then to the play is null and void um, and it doesn't mean anything because we can't run a play offensively. But when he's running and all of a sudden he makes a cut, you're saying he has a chance to run this back for a touchdown and to see him. Get dragged into the end zone with Larry Fitzgerald on his on his hip, and if you've been around James, he's a strong man, and for him yeah, to yeah. fall into that end zone, man, that was that that will go down forever. And I think that probably outside of the Franco Harris immaculate reception, probably the second meaningful play in Steelers history, if not the history of the National Football League, because that's a play because of how it happened in the manner that it happened in the Super Bowl. That play will be played forever for years to come.
0: Oh, for sure. Um his, he, he was a great player, that that's for sure. As someone who's played for both uh Coach Tomlin and Coach Cower, what would you say is the biggest difference between them? Because I know they're very similar, but they're also very different personality wise.
1: Yeah, they, they both are great communicators. They're, they they share their message. They come across clear and concise. And I think that's something that, you know, when you look at it, I had a chance to I, – I watched Cower when he first got here, followed him as a fan, but didn't have any opportunity to play for him uh, from 2002 to 2006. You know, he was at the end of his career, so you kind of knew already he was established and what he brought to the table. So everybody was excited to play for him, especially me and to see him win a super bowl and so solidify his hall of fame career that was special. Then you get Mike Tomlin, I have an opportunity to play with him from two, 2007 to 2012 and he was a young coach. We had a very veteran team and he was really th- he was only 3 years older than I was at the time. Wow. <laughs> so we're kind of sitting there. so there's a different respect that he has for each and every player and to see him go through a craft uh, craft out a niche for him and to see him kind of see where he is at this particular point, you could tell that from the first time that he walked into a room and he was able to share his message um, on what he expected. And, and you see that weekly in his press conference. He speaks very well, and you can see him now on a Hall of Fame trajectory. So it's really cool to now be able to play for two uh, eventually Hall of Fame coaches.
0: Yeah, very cool for sure. Um, You mentioned Jerome Bettis in Super Bowl Forty. What was it like being teammates with a guy like that? Because, you know, Bettis is sort of, you know, the jovial type. He was all, he's always talking, you know, when they, (laughs) when NFL films mic'd him up, it always seemed like he was talking, you know, he's making cracking jokes, keeping people loose, but what was he like? Oh yeah. I mean, you, and you get a lot of
1: people who are mic'd up. They talk a little bit more than what they normally do. But if you've been around Jerome He's like that all the time. He's a lovable guy. And having the opportunity to really be his locker mate, he was directly next to me. And it was somebody who I followed over the course of my career, especially not just what he did on the field, but what he was doing off the field, because I wanted to emulate myself after him. He's the NFL man of the year. Um, So I see what he did and the impact that he had in the community. As you see what he was doing on the field, it was everybody gravitated to him. The energy that he brought to the table, it was something that, you know, it was, it was, it, it was everybody gravitated essentially. And I think those are things that when you see what he brings to the table. And I remember having a conversation with said, Hey man, I know you're on a hall of fame career. I said, but I'm gonna need my Jersey sign. Can you please sign my Jersey? And he's like, what do you mean? You need my Jersey, uh, Jersey sign. I said, listen, he said, I'm not going anywhere. I said, Jerome, I heard that before. I played with a guy by the name of Barry Sander. He retired at the end of that year. So I need to get my jersey signed now. So we both laugh, you know, at that particular moment. But because he came to my house a lot, I couldn't hang his jersey up until he retired. So it wasn't right. until I didn't want him walking in my house and all of a sudden his jersey's on my wall and he's still playing. I'm his teammate. No, I'll do that after we're done playing. Same way with Ben been Roethlisberger, right?
0: Right, so, right.
1: Jerome, he was just one of those guys that You knew what he was capable of bringing to the table I loved every moment of playing with him And literally at the time of retirement I can say that I had I handed The football off to two Of the top five running backs In the history of the National Football League Jerome, I mean, Barry Sanders Was number two and Jerome was number five At the, at the time of retirement So to be able to do that, I wear that with a badge of honor
0: Oh man, that That's just so cool Um uh, that's just that's just way neat. Um, so let's j- jump off the field now a little bit. Uh, I mentioned that beforehand, you're your best of the batch foundation. Tell me a little bit about that.
1: Yes, best of the batch foundation. We're an educational foundation and we've been around now for 22 years. and what we do, we're, uh, Educational Foundation, we focus mainly on after school and our STEAM programs. And we say STEAM instead of STEM because we include A for the Arts element. And right now, we service 3,800 kids annually in nine counties throughout southwest Southwestern PA. And ultimately, we just went from 5,300 square feet to 33,000 square feet. So now our numbers are going to, uh, they're expected to go to 6,000 kids annually. So- this is our legacy that we're going to leave with our family, and this is something that you know, we get excited about because when the kids come into the building, they don't want to leave, and this is exactly why we built it. So we knew many years ago that this is what we wanted to do, but we don't do this by ourselves. I will be lying to you if I said we do this by ourselves. We have a lot of great partners the sponsors, people who believe in our mission and our vision and what we're trying to accomplish at the best of the Batch Foundation. So we're truly grateful and we're truly humbled by the belief that everybody has in us. And if anybody wants to learn more about what we're doing, you can go to batchfoundation.org.
0: Very cool stuff. Um, You know, I was poking around the site a little bit, you know, I saw what sort of programs you got going on. And uh, something I noticed is you got a basketball thing. It's called I believe it's called Project Chuck.
1: Yes. Um,
0: yes. Some, of, some of the notable people that have come through there include Terrell Pryor and Dewan Blair. Yes. So what's what's it like knowing that some of these kids that you saw the early young stage sort of go on to such big success? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's you know, you don't think about it at the time of,
1: of you, know, been, you know, when they're still in middle school, still in high school, you don't think about those things at that time. But to have, you know, the, we had Terrell Pryor, Pryor we had Dewan Blair who played for the San Antonio Spurs. We had T.J. McConnell who actually came through and played in our basketball league. And literally just this year, we had a young kid who went to Indiana, He played in basketball league, went to the University of Indiana, and now got drafted by the Lakers. Uh Jalen Shafino Hood um, is now a Laker and he's now, you know, he is an alum of the Project Chuck. And one of the things that people always thought that probably people said, Oh, Chuck, oh, you just named it after your basket, after your name. And I'm like, No, there's actually it's an acronym. It's an acronym. The acronym for Chuck is continuously helping uplift community kids. So that's the why pro- that Chuck, uh, that's how it became Project Chuck and the acronym behind it. But not many people really knew what that stood for, but it was just our way to ultimately bring the community together and what better way to do that through sports. And when you do that, you are trying to trick the kids because you're like, Hey, do you want to come play basketball? They're like, yeah, we'll go play. And then, Oh, by the way, you need to read a You need to read a book and attend four mandatory study halls. So this was our way of tricking kids, but also keeping a focus on education to make sure that they're now they're paying attention to a book during the course of the summer. So they can still keep fresh in their minds mentally as they prepare to get ready for the upcoming year school year. So that's essentially how it all came about. And we've been running it now for over 20 years and we just get excited about everything that we're doing now. So it just, it's just truly, it's cool to now start to see some of the people um, come through and hopefully they get a chance to return the favor back to their communities.
0: Oh, that that's just so cool. And program programs like that are so important, you know, with all, all the stuff that has gone, gone on the last couple of years and, you know, sort of, Helping kids sort of overcome the deficits, if you will. Absolutely. I'm curious. When did you realize that uh, um, you were working on sort of television and you know with the preseason games with Pittsburgh and sort of the pre and post shows might be a good next step for you to take? <laughs> I knew I wanted to do
1: something in media when I was finished playing. But when you talk to people who are in the industry, they're always telling you, hey, you have to get reps. You have to practice at some of these things to be ready for that moment. And when I was playing, it was right around 2008. I started doing my own TV show here. It's called the Charlie Bat Show. and We did it and I would interview players. So I was just trying to work on my skills. So what better way to do that with friends that you're familiar with and you get comfortable with? Yeah. And sure. then I wanted to get into calling games at some point and I have a good friend of mine by the name of Matt Fargo, who I met many years ago when he was with uh, the uh, Channel 4 affiliate, ABC affiliate down here as an intern. And he started uh, Champ Sports Network and he goes out to high school games and he said, Charlie, hey, on a Friday night, would you like to, you know, come out and call some games? That's absolutely. So I start. So even though I was playing, I would show up on, on high school games on Friday night. And I would call the games and a really good experience. It got me comfortable um, being in front of the camera, being comfortable, you know, calling the actual games, even though at that time, not many people were watching it. So I did that at 2008. And then 2012, when I retired in 2013, it was um, I was doing some uh, pre uh, pre pregame show, postgame radio and then ultimately, the guy who was going color commentating for the Steelers, he'd been around for 25 years and ultimately just retired. And from there, it gave me the opportunity because they said, hey, Charlie, we're familiar with what you've done over the last few years. If you want to, if you want the job, essentially, it's yours. And I'm like, wow. wow. And I said, wow, that's something, you know, that from 2008, people paid attention to that. So when people made the comment of saying, oh, I can't believe they just gave it gave him the job, it wasn't given to me. I had I was literally showing up regardless of what the weather was. It was 90 degrees in August, or if it was 20, 20 degrees in November, that's where I was showing up in these press boxes to make sure that I can go out there and get the reps and experience that I needed to go out here and call games.
0: Oh, for sure. Um, I can sort of relate to your beginning experience because – I actually did the exact same thing with my dad. I started calling my local high school football games just over the internet with my own thing, and you know it was sort of a way for me to connect with my friends. A lot of them were playing on the football team at the time because I I started it when I was a senior in high school. So,
1: absolutely, um, absolutely. So. People people realize they put the work that you put in, and people are always quick to. They don't want to acknowledge that, but, you know, those are things that you have to do when nobody's watching.
0: Oh, for sure. That kind of leads me into my next question. Um, Do you have any sort of memorable, like, moments, you know, calling Steeler games? I I know it's preseason and you call called some high school games, but can you think of any?
1: There's nothing. Well, I think just kind of the first, I will go back to my first game ever, and I think that's something that, Um, in 2015 ish, right around there, it was, you know, I was nervous and I'm like, I've never been this nervous when I played. And when you're doing live television, you know, you're sitting back and you're just like, oh, okay, make sure you get it correct. And literally just having a conversation with my wife. She's like, you've been here, let's do this. You know, there's, there's nothing more than what you've done before. Um, but it was just, I think after I was done with that very first game and, you know, receiving the feedback from people say wow you know very insightful we learned a lot when you were actually talking you know and and you're knowledgeable and understanding what you're talking about i think that was one of those ones that gave me um you know that allowed me to be a lot more confident during that particular point to say okay i got this
0: yeah it's it's really important that you just go out and try because if you don't try you're not going to know whether you're good at it or not correct Sometimes you just have to have to take the uh, the leap in whether you think you'll be good or whether you think whether you think it'll go not so good.
1: Absolutely. And right. that, and it's different and it's a little different, you know, when you call the regular season games versus preseason games. Because when you're playing right re- when you're in regular season, you know who the starters are. You know the 53 people who are on the roster and you're able to follow, you know, kind of some of the news clips that are happening during the course of the week. During preseason, you don't get that information. You have ninety guys, and the majority of the guys that you're talking about is the fifty third through the ninetieth guy, and you have to get some have some information on those guys because you realize they're taping the game, their families are watching the game. So you, if they make a play, you got to have something tangible to talk about. And oh, for sure, it, it puts it puts a lot. It's a lot of work that goes in behind it, and I, I enjoy every moment of it.
0: Oh, yeah, it's. I know it's a lot of fun when I get to call games. Um, so I'm glad I'm not the only one who feels that way. <laughs> uh, so what's the biggest thing that you were able to take away from playing football all those years, um, and sort of apply it to your post playing career.
1: Well, I think for me to the, 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 you realize the earlier you realize this is the best temporary job in America. Even though even though the NFL, if you make it to that level is great, but you will be a former player a lot longer than you're going to be active and you have to figure out kind of what that next step looks like for you. And by doing so, taking advantage of some of the educational opportunities that you may have, you know, NFL provides entrepreneurship classes and, and continuing education certificates, but you have to be willing to fill out the application, be willing to travel, go sit down. You know, be part of that uh, the network, whatever university that you choose to go. And I just remember, um, I ended up. I wanted to go. They were offering a course at um, at Wharton at the time, University of Pennsylvania. And I was waiting on a teammate of mine. He was like, "Hey, I want to. I want to go to the class with you." And I'm like, "Okay, cool." And then at the eleventh hour, he backed out, and I didn't go. And I was mad because I wasted an off season waiting on somebody else. And I said at that point that I would never. Depend on anyone else, you know, for something for that I want to accomplish. And the next offseason, I ended up taking that class up at Wharton. Then I took uh, the following off offseason. This was like consecutive years. I went Wharton. I did Harvard. I did Kellogg at the University of uh, of uh, North, uh, Northwestern University. Then I ended up going out to Stanford. I did Notre Dame. I went to Bowling Green. So I did all of these continuing education classes. And then I remember my wife. Is telling me, and she's saying, "We're talking to students and kids about furthering their education, but you haven't accomplished that yet." Yes, these certifications are great, but when are you going to actually go out and uh, and get your master's? And I looked at her like she was, you know, crazy. Like, what? You know, what are you talking about? And she said, "You want to know what? I'm gonna do something that you haven't done, and you weren't willing to do." And I said, "What is that?" Now, granted, this is in the February, beginning of March, and I just had some um, combine work that I had to do in Indianapolis. And I'm driving back and my wife said, you want to know what? I signed you up for your master's classes at Robert Morris. And I said, are you serious? And she said, I said, wow. I said, well, when do I start? This is on Tuesday. I said, when do I start? She said, you start next week. I said, what? And she said, better yet, it's a it it is a uh, She said, we're going to put you in an accelerated class. Wow. I said, are you kidding me? She said, yeah, if you you do this in March, you'll be done by December. You telling me you don't have 10 months? And I said, you're right. Challenge accepted. And ended up going and taking that uh, that, uh, that, uh, class and from there, ended up becoming the first person at Robert Morris to go through the accelerated program and graduate on time. And I was able to do that in 10 months. Wow. And from there, I was just like, okay, you know, I needed to do that for myself um, because I started grad classes when I was at Eastern, but I just never finished. And she wanted to make sure that I finished. And we always were, you know, we have, you know, there's always challenges that are in our family. And I think, you know, and on top of that, those were things that allowed me to kind of do some of the things that I wanted to do post career. And also, you know, just making sure that I was able to kind of, you know, cross off some of these things in my bucket list. But it also allows me to be ready for the opportunity whenever that may provide itself.
0: Wow. That that's way cool. Um, thank you for sharing that with this last question. I call this the, uh, the, uh, dinner question. Um, <laughs> if, if you could invite like three people from like each of the following groups, whether it'd be Eastern, whether it'd be whether it be Detroit or whether it be Pittsburgh, who would you choose? Like two other people, plus you. Two other people. If I had to go from Eastern,
1: there's two mentors that I've had that I do consider there's one by the name of Anthony snotty. He was, he's a mentor of mine. He literally took me under his wing whenever, uh, he was at when I was at Eastern, when I first came in. So I'm truly grateful for him. Um, another person from Eastern that I would actually invite to the table. And I know you mentioned three, but I'm just giving you a couple from, from Eastern, but another one is Keystone and Keystone is uh, instrumental in uh, you know, bringing game above to Eastern Michigan and have me be a part of it. I'm truly grateful for him. He would be a guy that I would bring to the table from Eastern Michigan. If I had to go, um, from Detroit, I would probably think, um, I would go Steve Bomber, the owner of the LA Clippers. He is a great person. Um, and then from Pittsburgh, I would probably think Mark Cuban. Oh, cool. Mark Cuban is from Pittsburgh. So those, those would be those would be my people that I think I would love to sit down with, kind of pick their brains a little bit and, and talk about how they actually, you know, got it, you know, how they started and where they're at. And I love each one of them as far as what they do, um, in the community and you know, doesn't get a lot of credit for things that they do. And right. those are people that I really try to emulate myself on because of things that we're doing in Pittsburgh and in the Michigan area. These are things that I'm truly grateful for because there've been a lot of people who have supported me along the way and in my journey. And I'm just truly grateful for all of the people who have been blessed that I've been blessed to have in my life.
0: Wow. That that's very cool. Uh, and I learned, I learned some new information and didn't know, Cuban was from Pittsburgh so yes oh yeah yes he is and Ballmer's from Detroit as well very very cool thank you so much this has been a special edition of the CNR Sports Armchair Interviews by guest today Charlie Batch thank you all so much for watching catch you on the next episode folks